Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I think the feminine mystique of today is that women are still expected to want children. I think that there's a sort of built-in expectation that eventually that is what a woman wants. And that in spite of decades of writing about this topic from various experts, that cultural idea of what a woman wants has never gone away completely. Welcome to season three of The Story of Woman. I'm your host, Anna Steckline. From the intricacies of the economy and healthcare to the nuances of workplace bias and gender roles, each episode of this season features interviews with thought leaders who provide fresh perspectives on critical global issues, all through the female gaze. But this podcast isn't just about women's stories. It's about rewriting our collective story to be more inclusive, equitable, and effective in driving change. It's about changing the current story of mankind to the much more complete story of humankind. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Story of Woman. In this episode, I speak with Monica Cardenas about the book that's been widely credited with sparking the second wave of feminism in the United States, The Feminine Mystique by Betty Friedan. Even though this book was published in 1963, I really wanted to include it in the podcast because there are just so many parallels to the issues we're still facing today. The domestic and maternal expectations placed on women, the shame and blame that happens when women step outside of that role or maybe do it a little bit differently, the cultural and legal barriers that limit our reproductive choices, the way all of these barriers disproportionately impact women of color and other marginalized groups, and so much more that was talked about and raised and an issue back then that we're still seeing today just with a slightly different color coat on. <laughs> uh, so I really wanted to talk to Monica about all of these parallels, really looking at what the feminine mystique was in 1963, how much progress has been made since then, and exploring this idea of a motherhood mandate, which is a phrase that was used by psychologist Nancy Felipe Russo in 1976. 
And then in the second half of the episode, we really explore what the modern day version of the feminine mystique is. We also talk about the importance of literature in shaping our culture and what books like this do for the feminist movement and for driving progress. I'll have Monica introduce herself in the beginning, so I'm just going to jump right into the conversation. But you may recognize her voice as this is the same Monica Cardenas that was a guest host for episode three of this season, the conversation with Chelsea Conaboy about her book, Mother Brain. So if you haven't listened to that episode yet, be sure to check it out. And as always, if you like what you hear, please take a minute to rate and review, share with a friend, or consider becoming a patron of the podcast for access to ad-free listening and bonus content, which there is some for this episode that didn't make it into the final cut. But for now, please enjoy my conversation with Monica Cardenas. Hi, Monica. Welcome and thanks so much for being here with me today. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. I'm really excited for this conversation today because, you know, it's a little bit different than the standard ones because we're talking about a book that was written in the 50s and wasn't written by yourself as opposed to some a lot of the previous conversations that I've had. Mm-hmm. We're talking today about the feminine mystique and specifically we'll be looking at how that has kind of what is the modern day feminine mystique today. And that's where you and your work come into play. So before we get into the book and all of the wonderful things and not so wonderful things that we are going to talk about, I'd love to just have you introduce yourself to us and what you focus on in your work and how that ties into what we're going to be chatting about. Sure, sure. I'm Monica Cardenas. I completed my PhD in English and Creative Writing at Royal Holloway University of London last year. And my research is about the representation of non-maternal women in literature and how misguided perceptions of womanhood and femininity can limit reproductive freedom. So as part of that, I reviewed particular U.S. Supreme Court decisions that relate to reproductive rights, as well as selected novels that feature protagonists in some way wrestling with fertility rights. And alongside that, I wrote my own novel that features a heroine in a similar position, but with some political intrigue and current abortion rights topics mixed in. But I'm still waiting for the an agent or publishing opportunity to come through on that. So if anybody's out there, holler. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> so as mentioned, today we are talking about The Feminine Mystique, which was a book by Betty Friedan that was written in oh, 1963. I lied, not the 50s, but 1963. And it's widely credited with sparking the second wave of feminism. And today we'll be really looking at how far we've come in terms of women's role in society and specifically women's maternal and domestic role. And that's what the feminine mystique is about. That's what your work centers around. And I want to give a caveat in the very beginning, and we'll talk about this throughout, that as influential as this book was, it has lots of problems with it. The main one being that it focused solely on a problem that was experienced mainly by white 
straight middle-class women. And like I said, we'll, we'll get into all of that today, but I just think it's worth mentioning up front and that despite these flaws, I do still think it's worth looking at and we'll be looking at it specifically in the reproductive rights context and drawing out parallels between this moment when the book was written just before the second wave of feminism and the current moment that we're in right now. So to start, let's talk about what the feminine mystique even was. So Monica, can you tell us about the book and what was this feminine mystique? Right. You said the book was published in 1963, but I think you were right about it being sort of based on what was happening in the 40s and 50s. And it's something that for Dan you know, only was able to publish in the 60s. But she says the feminine mystique is basically the belief that women are most fulfilled by being feminine, by being a housewife, a doting mother and wife who stays in the home and keeps it nice and cooks and cleans all day. So it was that sort of idea that was perpetuated through magazines and the culture after the war that she was interested in and how it affected her contemporaries at that time. Yeah. And to bring this to light even more, I just want to read the first two paragraphs of the book. And it's really referred to a lot as the problem that has no name because it's like this mysterious thing that women experience and we just don't know what it is, why they're so unhappy in these roles when they have everything that they need. You know, they're living out this, this American dream. I mean, because this book also, that caveat was really centered around American women specifically. Right. But yeah, so so this is the first two paragraphs of the book. So the problem lay buried, unspoken for many years in the minds of American women. It was a strange stirring, a sense of dissatisfaction, a yearning that women suffered in the middle of the 20th century in the United States. Each suburban wife struggled with it alone as she made the beds, shopped for groceries, matched slipcover material, ate peanut butter sandwiches with her children, chauffeured Cub Scouts and brownies, lay beside her husband at night. She was afraid to even ask herself the silent question, is this all? For over 15 years, because that's kind of like you said, the, the period before this book was written is kind of the period where all of this was really building up after the war. So for 15 years, there was no word of this yearning and the millions of words written about women for women and all the columns, books, and articles by experts telling women their role was to seek fulfillment as wives and mothers. Over and over, women heard in voices of tradition and Freudian sophistication that they could desire no greater destiny than to glory in their own femininity. Experts told them how to catch a man and keep him, how to breastfeed children and handle their toilet training, how to cope with sibling rivalry, how to buy a dishwasher, bake bread, how to dress, look, and act more feminine, how to keep their husbands from dying young and their sons from growing into delinquents. They were taught to pity the neurotic, unfeminine, unhappy women who wanted to be poets, physicists, or presidents, they learned that truly feminine women do not want careers, higher education, or political rights, the independence and opportunities that the old-fashioned feminists fought for. Some women in their 40s and 50s still remembered painfully giving up those dreams, but most of the younger women no longer even thought about them. A thousand expert voices applauded their femininity, their adjustment, their new maturity. All they had to do was devote their lives from earliest girlhood to finding a husband and bearing 
children. So yeah, that really, I mean, I think we can all, we can all imagine that pretty well. And I think we can also already start to hear the parallels between what was going on then and today. For sure. Yeah. There is a parallel today, actually. There's the trad wife hashtag trending on social media that sort of harkens back to all of what you just read, that whole lifestyle. And that hashtag is used by women who embrace that kind of lifestyle and talk about all the joy that it brings them. Of being a of being a housewife? Of being a housewife taken care of by their husband financially speaking and just being in the home and not aspiring to more than that. But that trend is sort of, I think, overshadowed by the problems we're facing now in the US with reproductive rights being pushed back even more. So I think the parallels are maybe more than coincidental Mm. into that later. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Interesting. I haven't heard of that hashtag. And of course, you know, and we'll get into people who want to be mothers and fulfillment. You can get out of this, but it's like, even if this brings fulfillment to some women, this will never bring fulfillment to half a population. You just cannot um, blanketly apply that to everyone. And something else, one other thing just to say about the feminine mystique from my perspective, before I get into my next question with you is you know, that another big component of this in this time period is that it was starting to become a known problem. Like you said, in the magazines and, you know, the media, doctors and counselors and educators, people were talking about it because women were voicing how they were feeling tired and these different components that really stemmed from mental health and well-being. And they were giving it names like housewife fatigue and the housewife's blight. But along with this, it was mostly always just dismissed, you know, saying women should feel lucky for everything that they have or blaming women's education, which of course just naturally made them more happy in their roles as housewives or the (laughs) classic saying women need to just have more sex and more children and that that would solve it. But basically all of the quote unquote solutions were around women themselves and what's wrong with them rather than (laughs) society and, you know, women's second tier status within it. And those problems, I think all that you outlined, logically, any other person would look at them and think, oh, well, maybe all women aren't happy just being a housewife. But instead, the so-called experts looked at it and thought, well, they just need to get on board with this. Right. Should be happy rather than, you know, seeing those problems for exactly what they were. Yeah, exactly. The focus on the individual. And then, of course, what that does is when a woman is feeling these things, she thinks something is wrong with her. She internalizes that. She's not going to admit her dissatisfaction or she'll feel shame around that. And then she also doesn't know that other women are feeling this way. So it's like in isolation. And again, I think of a parallel with today and after the pandemic, everything that's coming to light with all of the hidden care work and domestic responsibilities and all of the burden and burnout and everything that really has come to light that, you know, a lot of working mothers, especially maybe not understanding or, you know, we're kind of in isolation and the pandemic has helped bring that to light. So again, another kind of parallel. Yes. I think what we've seen is that 
of course, women have more freedom today than they did in the 60s. It's not strange for a woman, a mother to have a career outside the home, but we haven't made it any easier for them Mm. to be able to pursue those careers alongside motherhood. So I think women are just sort of expected to, okay, fine, if you want a career, you can do that. But that doesn't mean that all your other responsibilities go away, or that anyone else is going to help with it, or that there'll be any support otherwise. So it's not really a freedom in that sense, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just now you have two jobs. (laughs) Okay, so then... Looking back to 1963 and Betty, women before this book was written, before these 15 years, women were still always expected to be in the home. So what was different about this era in particular, do you think, compared to decades in the past? Yeah, I think the big thing, obviously, was World War II. When all of the men were fighting, women filled more employment roles. They started pursuing higher education. And then when the men returned, the women were expected to sort of fall back and and open those spaces up for men again. And of course, to build up the population, the mystique was perpetuated that women would be happiest. Even college-educated women, you know, who were ostensibly interested in a career, would be happier at home with their husband raising kids. And I think for me, that that image is most familiar in the British phrase that was popular after the war, lie back and think of England, make babies. <laughs> Uh, lie back and think of England. I haven't heard of that. <laughs> wow. This line. So wow. I think, you know, the war really brought this drastic shift to light. And that's what for the time frame that Fredan is looking at here, but she's looking at women's magazines and the shift in tone and theme that she sees in that time frame. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, she writes about the statistics as well in the book that the average marriage age of women dropped during this time period. The average number of kids rose. The proportion of women attending college dropped. You know, you see this reflected in all the statistics. And I think another big component of it was the kind of materialism and consumerism that came along with this era, right? All of the, the things that you needed to be a good housewife. Can you kind of explain that part a little bit and how you think that played a part in this specific time period? Yeah, it was. Well, I think the the addition of the feminine mystique that I have has an introduction by Lionel Shriver. And she starts by speaking about Mad Men, the television Mm -hmm. series. And I think that's a really excellent way to frame the feminine mystique, if you're familiar with it, because of course, the main character, Don, works at an advertising agency, and he has this 1950s beautiful housewife, Betty, who also was suffering from some mental illness because I think she's unhappy with the, you know her absent husband, philandering husband, who's <sighs> kind of stuck in the suburbs all day. And she used to have this cosmopolitan life. So it's kind of exactly what Fredan is talking about. With the element of the consumerism in Mad Men, we see Dawn selling products mostly to women who are at home watching television during the day or flipping through magazines. So 
having all that stuff to be a good, quote unquote, good housewife became really important. And selling it became a big deal too. I think it became a huge part of the economy. And of course, I mean, we see the same thing today, probably not just aimed at wives and mothers, but consumerism is such a huge part of our economy and the declining birth rate that we have today plays a part in that conversation still, making sure we have enough people to you know, fill these jobs and support an older population and buy stuff. It's an important issue related to the economy, according to some experts. So yes, I think having all that stuff as a housewife was a big part of it. It filled magazines. And I think in Against White Feminism, which was published two years ago by Rafia Zakaria, she talks about how consumerism played a part in feminism and how it was related to femininity. And I think she gives a really great example. I think she says, because there were dozens of laundry detergents that a housewife needed to choose between, she was sort of distracted from the movement and from freedom because there were all these choices to make around making the perfect home and being the perfect wife and mother. Mm. Yeah. And then the guilt on top as well of, well, look at all of these, you know, the washing machine, the dishwasher, these things that make your job so easy. So you should be thankful and, you know, excited right. for all of these new products that are going to yes, exactly. just help you. I think You're that welcome. was, that was part of the whole narrative. The story was not that women were less important than men because men had these important jobs they went out of the house to do. It was that women's jobs were as important or maybe more important because they were supporting the husband and keeping the home running and they needed all of these things in order to do that very important job. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yes. So then how did all of this feed into women's reproductive freedoms back then? Well, for Dan doesn't talk directly about, not at length at least, about reproductive freedoms. But of course, the choice to have a child is tied up in resisting this narrative of that being the only thing a woman can do. And she shares one story of a woman she interviewed who just says, the woman says sort of flippantly at one point that she's jealous of her neighbor. And for Dan assumes that she's joking because the neighbor has a busy, high-powered career. But the mother says, no, actually, I wasn't joking. I am jealous of her because she knows what she wants. And I don't know what that is. And the only time I feel I have any important role is when I have a baby and Mm -hmm. I can't just keep having babies. You know, babies Mm -hmm. grow up and they do their own thing. So that's one of the ways I think it ties into reproductive rights is if a woman wants to feel important or empowered, the only way she felt that at this time was to have a child. And if that's not something that you want for yourself, then that really hinders your rights. And of course, at this time, I should say, it wasn't until 1965, embarrassingly, so two years after The Feminine Mystique came out, 1965, Griswold versus Connecticut, the Supreme Court decided that there was a right to 
what they called marital privacy against state restrictions on contraception. So essentially, they said married couples were legally permitted to use birth control in 1965. And then that was extended to unmarried women in 1972. So technically speaking, it was not legal to use contraception until those decisions So, of course, that severely limits your reproductive rights if there's no legal access to contraception. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there was like the cultural influence on reproductive freedoms, the Mm -hmm. lack of choice there, and then the actual medical and legal restrictions on reproductive freedoms. Right. And then we had Roe in 1973 that made abortion legal. Mm. And then, of course... As Mm. everyone knows, last year, that was rolled back severely. Mm -hmm. Yes, and we'll get into into to the todays, but I want to have you talk to what we mentioned in the beginning, which was how marginalized groups were left out. So can you kind of elaborate on that point for us and how marginalized groups were impacted by this feminine mystique narrative back then? Yeah, I think... If you read The Feminine Mystique on its own, you might think that all women in the 60s were white middle class moms, wives and mothers. But of course, there were still single mothers. Obviously, there were women of color who had maybe were in the same circumstances as these women or were lower income, married or single and Any working class person, of course, is not facing the same Mm -hmm. problems that the the women in the feminine mystique were facing. They maybe would have been thrilled to have the opportunity to be home with their kids and see them if they were also working at the same time and struggling to do both things. So to an extent, it probably read to those groups and even today as, you know, oh, It doesn't sound so awful to a lot of people to be able to be a one-income household and devote yourself to your kids. I'm sure lots of mothers would love that opportunity, but can't do it financially. So I think that was a major lack of this book is it didn't consider those demographics. Yeah. Yeah. They were erased. And because of that, when you think about the fact that it didn't consider this you know, almost the majority, because when you look at all the different marginalized groups, because right. even like when sexual orientation of you know, people who aren't in heterosexual relationships, mm-hmm. working class, yeah, it's disproportionately women of color who have always been working outside of the home out of economic necessity, exactly as you say, that when they're excluded, and then you think about the fact that this book really helped kickstart the second wave of feminism, you can really start to see and understand how we're still dealing with white feminism, which was so firmly embedded in that wave and Mm -hmm. the decades to come. And then you give rise to books like Against White Feminism. I've had Koa Beck on the podcast with her book, White Feminism, that looks at all of the ways that marginalized groups continue to be left out of the more mainstream feminist movement. And yeah, you can really see when something as influential as this kickstarts that, how that's going to have ripple effects. Yeah, I think that at this time, and I'm sure today to a large extent, there's a tendency to exclude other groups, maybe under the misguided belief that you can be more effective if you just like hone in on one problem. 
And Ferdinand was criticized for that. I mean, during the second wave feminism, I think she advocated for leaving out homosexuals so of out of the movement. So I think that it lost stamina. And we see now that inclusivity, of course, like the more voices saying the same thing, the better. And that's something that Rafia Zakaria mentions in Against White Feminism. And I'm sure you see the same thing in white feminism. So I think we can also see a similarity with Margaret Sanger, who helped develop the birth control pill. She was later criticized for embracing the eugenics movement, which I've always been interested in, you know, wanted to know if that was by what she believed to be a necessity to get more people behind her effort to develop the birth control pill with, you know, the understanding that as long as the pill is out there, who does it hurt? But of course, a lot of people got hurt in the development of the pill. So I think we see the same kind of struggle repeating throughout and we need to just embrace the inclusivity and make sure that everyone has a voice. Mm hmm. Absolutely. And then just to read this one line that I found from this feminist thinker, this woman, Kelly Elaine Navis, she said, in retrospect, as a catalyst for the second wave of feminism, the feminist mystique was a factor in the evolution of black feminism and that black feminists were compelled to respond to the analysis it lacked and develop a theory and praxis of their own, which confronted issues of race, class, and gender. Mm-hmm. So in addition to the lack of the kind of more mainstream, you also see an evolution and a building of intersectional Mm -hmm. feminism and black, you know, whatever you want to call black feminism or Mm -hmm. these different ways of thinking that, yeah, confront the intersections of gender and other marginalized groups. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So one more question on the back then before we get into today, which was, you know, kind of what happened after. So this book Mm -hmm. comes out, it's really shedding a light on everything that lots of women in a certain demographic are experiencing, what happens and what types of ideas or progress did this book set in motion? As of 2020, it sold over 3 million copies. So obviously it became extremely popular, but at publication, I think a lot of women felt validated for their feelings, but many overwhelmingly felt insulted because it is sort of making a mockery of their lives. Ferdan spends a large part of the book explaining how magazines evolved from, I guess, a more equal content, including interesting literature and fiction and current events. And then into this time period in the 50s, writing articles almost exclusively on how to be a good housewife and raise your children and all those examples you read in the introduction. So that could be read as sort of infantilizing these women who have embraced this lifestyle. And I think it's important to point out that, of course, there are plenty of people in the world who would be entirely fulfilled by their family alone and running a household, which is hard work. But the problem identified in the feminine mystique is that, of course, that doesn't apply to every person and that women need to have options in the same way that men do. Yeah, I feel like it really, really highlighted the 
societal constructs that yes. were behind all of this that were harming them. Because like we were saying before, before it was just, well, the woman should be more happy or the woman this, mm-hmm. the woman that. And this was really looking at the system as a whole, or at least some people within the system, right? <laughs> as right. we said. How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Okay, so then looking at today, we all understand this Betty Crocker glorified homemaker era. And a lot of us, you know, might feel like we've moved past that in in certain countries, in certain demographics. But, you know, really the problems have not gone away. We're just in a new kind of era. So what do you think the feminine mystique of today is? I think the feminine mystique of today is that women are still expected to want children. And I think any woman of a certain age has experienced that question posed by, you know, family strangers. <laughs> when when are you going to have kids? When are you going to settle down? I think that there's a sort of built-in expectation that Eventually, that is what a woman wants. And that in spite of decades of writing about this topic from various experts, that cultural idea of what a woman wants has never gone away completely. And just last month, Ruby Warrington published a book called Women Without Kids that embraces this idea of not having children, but reading it now alongside the feminine mystique it is really frustrating to see how many of the same topics we're still covering rather than having moved past this. Do you have some examples of some of the same topics that we're still covering? Well, I think it's just the assumption that women want kids, that every woman wants kids. And I think what Ruby Warrington does really well is talk about all the other things women <laughs> might want. But what? Um, <laughs> yeah. Um and that but that's something that we see in the feminine mystique as well is that some women want to be poets or physicists, like you said in the introduction. And we're still talking about how that's a reality rather than just mm. accepting it mm. as a truth. Mm. Um, yeah, I guess that's that's basically it is that we, we're still having this conversation and I'm tired of having this conversation. <laughs> but the only way to change it is to keep talking about it and make people understand. In Women Without Kids, Ruby Warrington talks about the inclusivity that we were talking about earlier is that that every woman deserves a choice. It doesn't matter what it is, right? It's personal. 
And I think that is my goal for this part of the wave of feminism. There's a lot in our current wave, but to be able to make that choice and not have to explain it to anyone. Mm. It doesn't have to be because I want to pursue my career or because I'm not in the right partnership, or maybe it's because I don't have enough money, which is perfectly valid and should be addressed in other ways. But just the fact that women don't owe an explanation for the choices they make. Yes. And let's apply that across the board. (laughs) (laughs) So any other parallels from the feminine mystique that you want to point out? You know, we talked about like capitalism and consumerism and the things needed to be a housewife. Do we see those same things with motherhood? And we also talked about that kind of broader conspiracy of the government needing babies after the war, do we see any kind of broader picture of why we're still having these conversations today? Well, I don't want to say for certain it's a conspiracy. (laughs) Maybe that's not the right word, but yeah. (laughs) It looks that way. I think it is suspect that at the same time, everyone is freaking out about a declining birth rate and the impact it's going to have on the economy, that we're also seeing our reproductive rights severely restricted. I mean, in some cases, the restrictions across the United States are, they're just disgusting. The way that women are treated as if they can't make their own decisions Uh about their bodies and the complications that working moms face or mothers in lower income brackets face trying to take care of their children with no support from the government, I think just really transparently shows the cruelty behind the abortion restrictions, right? It's not about protecting the lives of children. It's about restricting women's rights and forcing them to have children they don't want or can't take care of. It's about making it out as if women can't make those decisions for themselves, that they need some intervention to make correct decisions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Again, just like back then you have the cultural pressures and the medical and legal. And today, mm-hmm. it's the cultural pressures to be a mom, to have to explain yourself if you don't want to be a mom, but then also the medical and legal that we're going to make it very difficult for you to not become a mom. Mm-hmm. And when you do become one, we're going to make it even more difficult for you to to just be one. <laughs> um, yeah. And I think for the cultural aspect is really important because If we are operating under this belief system that all women want to be mothers and critically, you know, this belief that we just inherently know how to do it, which has been debunked. And there's a new book out by Chelsea Conaboy called Mother Brain that goes into this. Taking care of a baby is a learned behavior. It's not something that people just know how to do. And I think that operating under this assumption that women just know how to do it and they naturally want this makes it that much harder for moms that are trying to do everything now because number one, they feel like a failure because they don't 
just automatically know how to do it. Mm. And I think support is needed, right? Government support, daycare funding, school funding, child tax credits, all of those things that help children thrive and help relieve the burden on parents are needed. And I think the conversations around those things don't happen as long as we think like moms just know how to do it. They'll be fine. Mm. Again, I'm hearing parallels of Hmm. the blame, the responsibility, whatever you want to call it, being on the individual woman. And that will in turn be internalized and think that, you know, if I don't want to be a mother or if I'm struggling, then Hmm. that's my own fault. That's my own problem rather than looking at society as a whole. And Mm -hmm. obviously these are conversations that we're all starting to have more and more and more, especially with the pandemic, but it's still very far away from being common knowledge or from being accepted by. Right. We see, I mean, every day I see a headline that implies that there's something wrong with people who don't want children. (laughs) The one (laughs) that sticks in my head was from a few years ago. And it was something like millennials just want fur babies rather than real babies. And I thought, why do they need to want something other than a child? Like there doesn't need to be something else. It might Mm. just be a personal preference. It just seems like the feminine mystique is is the same. It's like before it was, you will not be happy and fulfilled unless you are married with kids and living in a house in the suburbs. And now it's like, you will not be happy and fulfilled unless you are married and with kids and also having a full-time job. Like, and you can live in maybe somewhere beyond the suburbs now, like Mm -hmm. that's shifted a little bit, but it's like the same, right? Yeah. And I think, I mean, all moms will say this and I should say, I'm not, I don't have children. I'm not speaking from personal experience, but I think you see over and over again, moms, they're criticized if they don't have a job because mm. what what are they doing with their time? Right. Mm-hmm. Or they're criticized if they do have a job because that's taking their focus off of their mm-hmm. kids. And it's like, they can't catch a break. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I think we have that problem that stems from this belief in the natural instincts of women wanting to be mothers alongside women who don't want kids who are constantly confronted with this idea that there's something wrong with them. Yeah. That's something I want to ask. And that kind of ties into what you've just said is how does this impact women who want to have kids who want to be a mom, you know, is there a Mm -hmm. negative impact for them as well? Yeah, I think absolutely. That's what the point I was making before is that Mm -hmm. as long as we operate culturally, governmentally under this assumption that women just naturally want kids and know what to do with a baby, then it's dangerous for everyone because women who don't want kids might be forced by restrictions to abortion rights. And women who do want kids aren't therefore getting the support that they need to do it. Like I said, with government programs, proper health care, and particularly with women of color, the maternal mortality rate is horrific, especially for an advanced country like the United States. So without paying proper attention to those things, everyone is hurt by this misguided belief. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so talk more about marginalized groups. So we've said in the feminine mystique, they were erased and we saw mm-hmm. the implications and what happened with that and the mm-hmm. rise of white feminism and everything mm-hmm. else. So what about today's version? How does today's version impact marginalized groups? Well, we see impacts on marginalized groups because, for example, with healthcare in the United States, if you don't have healthcare through your employer, it's really hard and really expensive. I mean, I think Obamacare helped with that, but that hurts women who are seeking abortion care or maternal care, right? We see in the Hyde Amendment, for example, that took government funds away from abortion care, which just means that people who are reliant on government-funded health care don't get the care that they want or need. And we see the maternal mortality rate for everyone in the United States is poor, but especially for women of color. And I think one of the things that we don't talk enough about, especially because the anti-abortion movement so loudly tries to paint abortion as a dangerous procedure, is that pregnancy is so much more complicated Mm. and potentially dangerous than an abortion. So so many women suffer complications, serious illness, threats of death, death. So not having that care in place, especially for lower income women who can't afford to, for example, travel to another state if they Mm -hmm. live in a state that can't legally give them care anymore because of abortion restrictions, their lives are in danger, Mm -hmm. simply put. Yep. It's absolutely low income women, people of color that are most negatively impacted by all these abortion restrictions. And the maternal mortality rate for black women in America is three to five times higher than for white women. Wow. Yeah. When you just look at that and combine with, they're the population that is most forced to have pregnancy, let's say, you know, most Mm -hmm. impacted by these anti-abortion laws, but also that just means most forced to have pregnancies. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, yeah, three to five times more likely to die in America. It's just, it's absolutely abhorrent. And I want to point out that one of the anti-abortion lines on this subject is, I mean, I feel repulsed just saying it, but they like to say that because more women of color seek abortion care, that by allowing those abortions to take place, it's hurting the population of Black Americans. Oh my God. Without regard for the fact that the women in question are actively seeking an abortion, they want an abortion. And to imply that their choice is less important than whatever some legislator Mm -hmm. somewhere in Texas thinks it is. It's just abhorrent. Mm -hmm. Again, just removing all option of choice and saying, Mm -hmm. we know what's best for you. Right. So we've talked a lot about the feminine mystique so far, but it's not just the feminine mystique. It's all literature that plays an important role in these narratives. And, you know, they kind of feed into culture and society and that in turn feeds into the literature we see. But can you tell us about some of other works of fiction and nonfiction that shape the culture and society's expectations of women? Yes. My favorite subject. Um, in literary studies, we believe that fiction is, quote unquote, consciousness raising. So 
that's the idea that these novels, while they're not true, can help change the cultural narrative and help people recognize other types of characters, cultures, places, that kind of thing. So I should reference Juliet Mitchell and Alan Sinfield wrote a lot on this subject. And so the books that we see that I think are making a change in how we think about these women, first in the 60s, around the time The Feminine Mystique was published, was The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath. That featured a young woman who was afraid of getting pregnant because she wanted to be a poet. And I think that was really radical at the time. But what's interesting to me is that in The Bell Jar, she does have a baby. We know that in the first couple of pages, she references the baby. And then we go back to this time when she didn't think she wanted to have a child. So I think that kind of speaks to the time. But fast forwarding to today, I think a lot of novels I've been reading lately have these themes in place. We had The Mothers by Britt Bennett and An American Marriage by Tyree Jones, which both treat abortion as sort of a matter of fact thing that happens that doesn't hurt anybody. It's just a thing that happens that sort of changes the dynamic of relationships maybe, but none of the women that experience the abortions in these books are you know, traumatized by it in any way, which I think is really important that we see stories where it doesn't ruin your life. I mean, statistics show it doesn't <laughs> for most people. It doesn't need to be this dramatic, horrible thing that the anti-abortion movement tries to paint it as. And then in Miyako Kawakami, um, her work has just been translated into English in the last few years, and it's really great. And her novel, Breasts and Eggs, features a character that is single and wants a child, and she goes to great lengths to do that. And I think just seeing women in those different roles, making choices, owning those choices for themselves makes a big difference in how we see the world and how we see women who choose not to have children. Definitely. So where do we go from here? Uh, Looking forward, because, you know, as we've talked about, on the one hand, huge strides have been made since The Feminine Mystique was published. But on the other hand, no strides have been made because (laughs) it was published pre-Row. And here we are again in a world without Row and in a world where our government is still restricting our reproductive rights and society and culture are still very much set on mandating what is best for women and that thing that is best still has to do with her uterus. So what do you think needs to happen to start not just transforming this mystique into another one for the next generation? Because I feel like, you know, with my skeptical hat on, that's what I feel Mm -hmm. like. Yeah, we make progress and it's just going to evolve and then be another mystique with a different color coat on. So how do we get rid of it altogether? (laughs) I think we keep talking about it. Keep talking about it. Keep writing about it. I think just, I hate this word, but normalizing it is Mm. really important. I think we saw that with the gay rights movement and gay marriage, achieving those things. Those were really well supported by seeing people on TV, out in the world, in movies, in books, who were just like us, (laughs) right? Shocking. And I think just doing the same thing with 
women who don't have children who are non-maternal and even stories I've seen about women who regret having children and who are admitting that. And I think just hearing those stories and understanding, approaching it with an open mind, easy to say, but definitely the stories play a huge part in changing how we see the world. Also, continuing to speak up for reproductive rights is a huge, huge part of it. And staying involved in that fight. I think once Roe was overturned, we saw a lot of anger and pushback on that. In states where there have been a vote on abortion rights on the ballot, overwhelmingly, abortion rights wins. So I think if we just keep putting that forward, the majority will prevail. And the majority believes that women deserve a choice. Do you feel hopeful for the future? <laughs> That's <laughs> Yes, I do. I do. I have to. And while there are legislators in certain states that are hellbent on rolling back women's rights, I think there are many more of us who will fight those changes and fight to maintain our rights. Hmm. So I think no one's going to go quiet on this. And I'm hopeful, yes, that our rights will prevail. And and with abortion rights, as we've talked about, I think those are entirely entwined with the choice not to have children, right? Even if a child-free person never needs to have an abortion, is never pregnant, all of those things tie together. And, and maintaining mm-hmm. that right is an important part of just allowing women the option in life in the same way men do. Absolutely. Speaking of men, that was one last question I wanted to ask was, what do we say about men in in all of this? You know, what do they stand to gain by helping to get rid of this mystique, this motherhood mandate? How does it impact them? I would like to believe that um, (laughs) men appreciate having, I should say in heterosexual relationships, I think that men would appreciate having an equal, right? Having someone that they, you know, it's not another child. Their wife is not another child. It's a partner. And I think that that's what men stand to gain, right? And they also deserve a choice, not over other women's bodies. But I think just having that open conversation with your partner about whether children is something that you both want or not. That's something that both parties in a relationship deserve to have, not the assumption that children will be foisted on them at some point in their relationship. Totally. And that's within the individual family and relationship. Imagine this narrative starts to change in society. Imagine what that could do for fathers. You know, we start to value fathers in a way that we don't right now. You know, right now. We put all of this, all I, I think of my oh, one of my friends here in London who's a, a new father, and I'll never forget he was talking to me about how sad he felt. He was looking for, he was so excited, so excited being a new father and was looking for groups to participate in. You know, he wanted to do mm-hmm. things, he wanted to meet other parents, and every group that he was finding was for moms specifically. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I can't find anything for me. And it just yeah. I could like he was so sad about it. And, you know, obviously I say to him, well, you know, you're going to have to start that group now, but you know, 
there's so much that men stand to gain, not to mention paternity leave and just being able to right. spend more time with their children. And mm-hmm. there's there's so much that could be improved for them, which is going to make a huge impact for their children, for everyone involved, for society as a whole, if fathers are welcomed into this mix instead of just putting all of the focus on women. And that can't happen as long as we continue perpetuating this idea that women just naturally know Mm. and it's an inherent gift and the father needs to learn and catch up. That's not how it works. Um, Of course, you know, there's a hormonal element during the pregnancy and just after the birth, but men and women equally can take care of a child just as well. And I think, yeah, the fathers aren't going to feel equal in that relationship as long as we continue believing that women are somehow more naturally parental. Totally. And you mentioned before, like the infantilization of women that, you know, a lot of this comes from. That's also like infantilizing men being like that they're not capable of this, not to mention, you know, giving an excuse, but that's all just founded on bullshit. So (laughs) just technical term. Yeah. yeah, That's, that's, that's the most technical term I can think of right now. (laughs) If people take one thing away from this conversation with you today, what would you want it to be? I think it would be to approach everyone, no matter their reproductive choices with an accepting attitude, right? So it's not just leaving child-free people alone in their choices, but also to allow doting mothers to be doting mothers and Mm. not ridicule them for that. And just allow everyone to embrace their reproductive choices as their own without any judgment. Amen. It sounds so simple. (laughs) Just let people do what they want to (laughs) do. Yeah. Uh, Lovely. Monica, thank you so much for your time today. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was great to be here. Thanks for listening. The Story of Woman is a one-woman operation run by me, Anna Steckline. So if you enjoy listening and want to help me on this mission of adding woman's perspective to mankind's story, be sure to share with a friend. One mention goes a long way. Hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode and make sure to rate and review the podcast while you're there. For more content from the episodes and a look behind the scenes, follow the story of woman on your social media platforms. And for access to bonus content, ad-free listening, or to have your personal message read at the end of every episode, consider becoming a patron of the podcast. Or you can buy me a one-time metaphorical coffee. All of this goes directly into production costs and helps me continue to put out more and better episodes. In exchange, you'll receive my eternal gratitude and a good night's sleep knowing you're helping to finally change the story of mankind to the story of humankind. Humankind.